to another Outbreak podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about aspects within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me is Stephen Hearns. Stephen is a consultant in emergency medicine based in Paisley. And over the past 15 years, he's led the establishment of the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service in Scotland and is now their lead consultant. He's been a member of Arica Mountain Rescue Team for 18 years and has recently managed to find the time to write an excellent book entitled Peak Performance Under Pressure. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, good, uh, good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. So I understand that you know performance under pressure is has clearly become kind of a, a bit of a specialist interest for you. What what got you into it? Yeah, I suppose I've got a, a number of roles where performance is important and where I am operating as part of a team in, in a high-pressure situation. And what actually happened was about five years ago, we introduced badge camera filming in the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service. And that was aimed to improve our performance and our safety in performing emergency anaesthesia, both in secondary retrieval settings, but also in pre-hospital care. And the idea is that I wear a badge camera and I film the registrar or the retrieval practitioner that's working with me, and they in turn film me. And then when we go back to the base as, as part of our debrief, we watch the, uh, the video and the, the audio uh, listen to the audio from that footage. And what became really quite apparent to me was that a lot of the time I, I did perform well under pressure. You could you know, see my, my communication skills, my ability to innovate, carry out practical tasks and to, to lead the, the team. But what became pretty obvious to me very quickly was in a number of these cases, especially when the patient was deteriorating, despite what I was trying to do for them, that my ability to perform was really pretty poor. My ability to, to make decisions, to, to communicate and lead the team really was compromised by the pressures that, that we as a team were, were facing. And in particular, my implicit communication, my nonverbal communication was, was really poor. Um, in terms of my posture, my, my facial expressions, and, and my hand movements. And those really let the rest of the team know that I wasn't in control of the, the situation. And often, unfortunately, that um, I wasn't too impressed with their, their performance either, which really led to a deterioration in the performance of the, the whole team. And actually, what I, I later found out was that um, my behaviour, particularly my implicit communication, was well recognised in, in the rest of the retrieval team. And they used to say that on jobs that hadn't gone well, that they had been herniated by Stephen Hearns. <laughs> so I, I realised that there was a, a need for me personally to improve the way that I performed under pressure. And indeed, as, as a lead for the, the team at that service, to try and do what we could to try and improve the, the performance of the whole of the MRS team under pressure. And that's what got me into this, looking at the psychology of performance under pressure, indeed trying to find out what the specific pressures were that we were facing. And ultimately that led on to this concept of us trying to own the pressure and, and indeed me writing the, the book. 
it must be a fascinating tool to kind of to be able to unpick the jobs that you've been in and that kind of self-critique must be must be really interesting yeah the badge cameras have been absolutely invaluable for for that to give each of his insight into how we really are performing and how we are coming across to to other members of the, of the team it seems that it's it's an area within pre-hospital care that's gaining a lot of interest and that pre-hospital care is maybe even leading the field in some ways in this what is it about being outside of a hospital do you think that makes these performance decisions so so critical well, I think a number of, of things. There are quite different pressures when we are looking after a critically ill or injured patient in the pre-hospital environment compared to the hospital. There's obviously pressures from the environment itself. We've got pressures that come from more limited equipment, uh, more limited access to, to consumables. There's always greater time pressure in the pre-hospital environment. And we're much more likely to be working in a, in a flash team with other emergency services workers and other healthcare providers that uh, we, we previously haven't met before. And, and they've got uh, often different skill sets and, and different priorities. So the, the pressures of performing, uh, assessing patients and, and performing certain procedures are, are much greater in the pre-hospital environment compared to for example, the, the environment that I work in, in in the emergency department. One of the things that I took from from reading your book was this concept of the sort of the arousal curve. Can you can you explain the concepts involved with this and the terms flow and frazzle? Yeah, so the the book I suppose is centred around this relationship between performance and pressure, and it's based on the the Yerkes Dodson curve, which is shaped like an, an inverted U. You have performance on, on the vertical axis and then uh, increasing levels of pressure on the horizontal axis. And as I say, the, the relationship between the two is, a, is like a, an inverted U. And there are four different states of performance which vary according to the pressure that, that you're under. The important thing to remember is that pressure is good for performance. We need a certain level of pressure in order for us to be motivated to, to perform well. So the, the four states are disengagement, and that is a state of low performance when the pressure on us is not high enough to, to motivate us, to arouse us, to, to stimulate us. So we're not really switched on in that, that zone of disengagement because the pressure isn't enough. The next one is the, the sweet spot of performance, which is known as the zone of flow. And that's when we get a low level release of cortisol and, and adrenaline, which acts to, to motivate us, to arouse us, to stimulate us and puts us into that, that zone where our cognitive capacity is, is at its best. We actually improve our fine motor skills and we communicate, innovate, and, and we lead the team optimally. And that's really a pleasant place to be, that, that sweet spot of, of high-performance flow. But it's really easy, particularly in, in the pre-hospital care, for the pressure to increase even just slightly, which moves us into the zone of, of excessive pressure and the zone which uh, psychologists refer to as the zone of, of frazzle, 
which can be easily compared to developing a, a stress response and our ability to make decisions, carry out practical tasks, etc., starts to deteriorate. And then there's a, a fourth uh, zone called freezing or choking. And that is when the pressure becomes really excessive on us and we actually lose the ability to, to communicate or to carry out any practical tasks. And that is a, an evolutionary response to extreme pressure when we, we feel that we're under a considerable amount of, of threat and we're potentially not going to survive. And essentially, we play dead. And back in the days when we were uh, facing attack from, from animals and uh, other assailants, if we played dead, then they didn't see us as a threat anymore and, and stopped attacking us. And we, we can actually see that. I've, I've certainly experienced that sometimes at pre-hospital environments and, and in the emergency departments where uh, you know people have frozen, they've choked, and they've been unable to contribute to, to patient care because of that. So. So yeah, so the relationship between pressure and, and performance, there are, are four states to that. Disengagement, when we don't have enough pressure to perform well, then the, the zone of, of high performance flow, when the level of pressure is just right for us, moving into the zone of, of frazzle or stress, and then finally into that, that zone of no performance at all, of freezing or, or choking. I guess for the sort of the intermittent, responders such as many basics responders are there is a big danger that because we're not routinely exposed to the high pressure environment that we're at risk of being pushed into that uh, into frazzle or beyond by the nature of the jobs that that responders are turning up to do you have any suggestions as to as to how you could mitigate that yes one of the philosophies in the book is about looking at uh, in our context of of pre-hospital care that any pre-hospital um, situation involving a, a serious level or, or injured patient you know, has got the potential to be overwhelming in terms of the risks that are there, in, in terms of the difficulties of patient assessment, the working with the, the flash teams, etc. And they can easily lead to cognitive overload and, and frazzle. It's easy to think of a pre-hospital scene or each one as being unique and the, the, them all being, being different and having the, their own pressures and, and challenges. But if you stand back and you, you look at them, then actually maybe, for example, half of the pressures and, and what we need to do at a pre-hospital scene are the same for all pre-hospital scenes. And then maybe 50% of it is, is seen or, or task-specific that we, we need to, to react to. I don't know if that's coming across clearly enough, but what I'm trying to say is that a significant amount of the decisions and, and practical tasks that we need to be to make at a pre-hospital scene are predictable and they are repeated no matter what's wrong with the patient or indeed what the, the situation is. And if we can prepare for those, particularly in terms of drilling, until uh, and use of, of cognitive aids, then we can nail our performance for that 50% of, of the job, which is repeated and predictable, and we can preserve our cognitive capacity for the, the ducking and diving and the decision-making that's required for that individual particular job. So identifying what is repeated, what is predictable, drilling that 
planning it, perfecting it, allows us to go into that job and use automatic processing for those decisions and tasks, just leaving that, that capacity to, to deal with the, the particular challenges of, of that job. That's brilliant. It's yeah, really useful and ties into hopefully the way that we try and teach and train on, on some of the training courses. I guess my next question is for your, your rural GP, it's maybe been a few years since they've done a course who gets tasked to a critical incident. What can they do en route you know, whilst they're driving themselves to the scene? How can they start to try and prepare themselves and free up that bandwidth that you're sort of mentioning so that they can perform well once they arrive there? Well, this is only my I personal opinion, and I'd like to start off by saying what I think you shouldn't do, and, and this might be a bit counterintuitive. I don't think that you should mentally rehearse what your actions are going to be based on the information that, that's come through from your, your tasking. A lot of the time when we get to patients in the pre-hospital environment, they are not as unwell or, or injured as the, um, the deployment information would have suggested. And similarly, we can get there and the patient can be a lot more sick than we had been led to, to believe. So there are dangers in terms of cognitive biases in preparing ourselves too much before we actually get to the job. And that can send us down the wrong routes with, with certain patients. What I would recommend, though, is preparing yourselves really just for our actions during the first minute after we arrive at a scene. And that is particularly important for basic doctors who are going to be arriving at a scene and working as, as part of a flash team, possibly with ambulance clinicians they haven't met before, with the police, with the fire service, etc., they need to enter that scene displaying the right characteristics to those other emergency service providers. So even it's a mentally rehearsing what you're going to do when you, when you arrive. And that is very much about when you stop your vehicle, surveying the scene from your windscreen, preparing in advance what you're going to take in terms of medical equipment and your personal protective equipment. And having a pause at a, a decent distance from the scene before you start to engage with patients or other emergency service providers. Uh, Cliff Reed talks about this as being a, a zero point survey. Actually pausing, you know, 20, 30 meters back from the scene, trying to work out, you know, what has actually happened, what resources are already there, and particularly what the, the hazards of, of the scene are and actively pausing and taking maybe 20 seconds to do that. And then also having planned how you are going to approach, particularly, you know, ambulance service colleagues when you arrive, possibly picking up, shaking their hand, introducing yourself, getting their name, and specifically saying, you know, what can I, I do to help? All of that about trying to manage how you are perceived by other emergency services providers there. I like to think of the three C's of being calm, competent, and confident. And that is going to set the, the scene for effective teamwork and indeed giving the best care to the patient and the most positive experience for all the, the healthcare providers that are there. 
So I, I think it's it's not so much predicting how you're going to manage the, the scene clinically, but just preparing how you're going to approach that scene during the first minute and how you're going to come across to other colleagues who are, are already there. I guess sort of setting the tone from your non-verbal communications before you start so that you're, you're off on a good start rather than coming in screeching to a halt sideways with everything going to pieces. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. That's vitally important. Yes. So what about once you're a little bit more into the job and you're dealing with a sick patient and you feel that the pressure is mounting and you become aware that you're starting to drop off that uh, that performance curve, what can you do to try and re-establish control when the pressure's increasing? Well, I suppose you can divide that up into, I suppose, two parts. It's about regaining personal composure and regaining situational control. Maybe now is a good time to, to talk about situational control. If, if you do think that the situation is deteriorating, um, maybe teamwork isn't as effective as it might be, and that you and other people are, are moving into uh, a zone of excessive pressure or, or frazzle, then I, I think a really effective technique is to have a, a rally point. And that's a, a technique which... I believe that American special forces use when there's a, a will in it in the firefight. And the idea of a, a rally point is to achieve a shared mental model, which is, is accurate, to identify what indeed the problems are, what needs to be done, and delegate those as much as possible to cognitively offload yourself as the scene leader. And that, again, that's quite counterintuitive when we feel we're under time pressure to actually pause the situation, stop what you're doing and actually have a, a discussion. But it really does play dividends. And intuitively, what we do, and what most of us do in these situations is we pause the situation, we gather other healthcare colleagues around us and we say, right, this is what I think is happening here. This is what's wrong with the patient. And this is what we need to do. Does everyone agree with me? And that is not actually an effective way to get an accurate and shared mental model of, of what's happening. You will fall foul of command gradient of groupthink. And if you have your perception or an understanding of what is wrong with this patient and what needs to be done is inaccurate, you will not learn or be guided by other members of the team who may actually have the right answer. Which much more effective is to start the conversation by asking other you know, paramedics, other, other doctors, technicians, etc., who are there, what their take on the situation is. And then you take on board what they say, what their mental model is, and you summarize things after that. That needs to be well managed. And obviously, you, you've not got a lot of time to do it, but it is the most effective way of getting it shared an accurate mental model. And then from that, coming up with a list of tasks and prioritizing them and then delegating them out so that you are cognitively offloading that yourself. So a rally point is the most effective way of, of regaining situational control. Then there are different techniques for regaining personal composure. And uh, I think the, the three main ones are controlled breathing and that is a technique that you can use if you feel that you are moving into that zone of frazzle 
and you can do it without anyone knowing that you're doing it. And it's really about trying to slow your breath down to about eight breaths per minute, so about eight seconds per breath. And that will reduce your, your sympathetic overdrive, reduce your heart rate, and it will act quite effectively to, to calm yourself down. The second technique is positive self-talk, which is very commonly used by athletes. Actually having phrases in your head that give you confidence, like you've got this, you can deal with this, etc., just to boost your confidence. And that can be your own voice or the voice of someone that was previously a, a mentor, for example, and thought that you were good at your job. And then the final technique is cognitive reframing. It's actually, it acts like a, like a reset button, a bit like Control-Alt-Delete, and actually getting yourself out of the situation, get yourself away from the audible and the visual stimuli that are around you. Pretend that you're going to go in and make a phone call and walk away somewhere quiet. And again, counterintuitively, don't think about the job. Lots of people think cognitive reframing is is going away, thinking about what the problems are, thinking about what you need to do. Just think about something completely different. And that cognitive reframing process will allow you to perform better and move back into that zone of flow when you return to the patient. In terms of situational control, the idea of having a rally point to achieve a, a shared and an accurate mental model, and then that allows you to delegate. And then for personal composure, slow controlled breathing this idea of personal self-talk and cognitive reframing that's really interesting they're not sort of seismic ground shaking different ways of doing things and they're all quite subtle things that you can throw into almost every job but actually it completely changes the way that the job feels to you as well as looks to the outside observer oh listen a hundred percent these are the, the personal composure techniques are all pretty rapid you'll be able to you know achieve an improvement in performance in under a minute with each of those and the rally point if you practice that and you manage it well again you can get that uh, sorted in a minute or two and overall that will improve your time on scene it will ensure that everyone is working much better together as a team and when they reflect afterwards on that job everyone else who is working with you will reflect on it more positively. I've certainly changed my gloves midway through a job before, and it's just given me that little bit of space just to try and recapture control. I guess one of the challenges I find working in the pre-hospital environment, you've mentioned it a couple of times, is dealing with these sort of flash teams with unplanned groups who have got different specialities, different priorities, different ways of doing things. Any sort of top tips for how to guide, control, steer these flash teams? Yeah, that's it's part and parcel of the work that we do in pre-hospital care, attending scenes where, you know, there could be multiple uh, ambulance service personnel, paramedics, technicians that we haven't worked with before. Police might be there, mountain rescue teams, the, the fire service as well. And those are individuals and, and organizations with different skill sets, with different priorities for, for managing the scene. They've got different levels of factual knowledge. They also may have their own terminology and jargon, which makes communication difficult. And we don't know their names of each individual. So all of that can be really challenging 
in terms of working together to the benefit of the patient, especially in time critical situations and in situations where there, there is physical risk to the emergency services personnel. And uh, certainly last year, I was involved in two pre-hospital incidents with EMRS. One was a mid-rescue incident in Glencoe with a, with a patient who was hypothermic and in cardiac arrest. And on another occasion, a patient who was in cardiac arrest after falling from a, a waterfall and been a, a submersion in water for a prolonged period. And in both of those jobs, there were easily 50 people on scene, as I say, all with different skill sets, priorities and levels of knowledge. And as we all know, that's difficult for us as pre-hospital care clinicians. And I suppose an advanced understanding where each different service is coming from, what sort of level of first aid training knowledge that they've got, and indeed in a, a rescue situation, what different capabilities each team has is important. But I think the key thing for all this is about communication. And in the same way that we would deal with a, a multiple casualty major incident, these multi-agency incidents with flash teams, we should have clearly identified leads for each of the different teams and try to come together at regular times for briefings so that you can identify each team's different take on, on the situation and what their priorities are. Again, akin to this idea of having a, a rally point and trying to achieve a, a shared and an accurate mental model. I think that is pretty important. And also trying to encourage the leads from other teams to disseminate that information from that briefing to their teams. And certainly on the, the second incident that I uh, was referring to, that did seem to work quite well in, in a very challenging situation with a, a very large flash team. It's fascinating how varied people's understanding of a pre-hospital scene is once you sort of dig into it. And I guess, yeah, if you can get folks singing off the same hymn sheet, it stands to reason that you, you get a better outcome. Yeah, I think that's um, it's inevitable, I suppose, when you analyse that, is people are coming at it with different levels of knowledge and experience. People are arriving at different times. Information that's been passed to them verbally is often inaccurate and is very dynamic. And also people, when they're stressed, don't lay down very good long-term memories. And again, that's a protective response to try and avoid us getting, essentially, I suppose, a post-traumatic stress disorder. So when someone's involved in a, in a high-pressure situation, they will not lay down very detailed and inaccurate memories. And when you debrief with other people, as we all know, their recollections of what happened can be very different from the other people that are taking part in the debrief, and that's partly why. That's fascinating, and it contributes to a really interesting series of conundrums. One of the things we've been trying to get folk to do is to give kind of three top tips for basics responders to take away that can help them improve their own performance under pressure and contribute to improving outcomes. Have you got any suggestions for our responders? Yeah, uh, I suppose my, my top three tips are drilling, use of cognitive aids, and this idea of uh, having a, a rally point. We all talk about simulation and training, and a lot of focus is on that. But I would encourage people to also focus on drilling, repeatedly performing 
practical tasks until they become automatic tasks that you can do rapidly, you can do efficiently and don't use up a lot of your cognitive capacity, leaving your cognitive capacity to deal with the nuances of the job. Cognitive aids, I don't think that we can have enough cognitive aids in terms of checklists, bullet point guidelines, etc., and actually remembering to use them and not thinking that if we're experienced, then it's going to make us look to others as if we don't know what we're doing when we're using cognitive aids. And as I've talked about a few times, this idea of a rally point, having a pause, finding out how other members of the team perceive the situation, coming up with a, a list of prioritized tasks and delegating. So include drilling of predictable tasks in your training as well as simulation. Make good quality cognitive aids for yourself and your team and regularly use them on jobs and in complex situations, especially if you think you're moving into the zone of frazzle, have a pause and have a rally point. Stephen, that's fantastic. Thanks very much for a brilliant set of insights into both how we perform where the pressure is on and also how we can do it better. We'll put the details of your book up with this podcast so folks can dig into this area in a bit more depth. But many thanks for coming on to chat to us. Cheers. Thanks very much, Dave. Thank you. 